This is Frameform. Hey, Hannah. Hey, what's up? Oh, just another another Wednesday here on the Frame of Forms. The Frame of Forms, yes. Jen this week is traveling, and you know what? The show must go on. So Claire yep. and I are going to be, you know, whispering into your ears today. Yes, but Jen is very, very much here in spirit. Yes. So today's episode, uh, if you read the title, um, we're going to give you guys a brief, you know, brief lesson in putting your work on the internet, which is basically a very common thing these days. Wouldn't you say, Claire? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is the kind of thing where I think you could devote maybe like five different podcasts or five different episodes just to this topic. And I mean, I think you could even just spend one episode discussing like what counts as work Mm. because so much gets um, gets mixed into the milieu of what we see on either social media or on web pages and that ranges everywhere from very highly produced work that you might commonly see in a cinema, along with some very, very DIY work. And so there's always this question of what do you want people to see? Like what, uh, what part of your, your portfolio or your, your work or your process do you want people to see? And what, in that sense, counts as, as work? And there, there's a whole discussion to be had about that. But today, we're really going to be focusing on some of the basics of why people are gravitating toward online spaces and things you might want to consider as you are putting content online. And I actually want to say right off the bat, I so hate the word content. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's kind of triggering in some cases. Like, I watch these YouTube interviews or like, I mean, YouTuber interviews talking about content. And I mean, it's so funny to be, be in this time where like everyone kind of feels like they need to be creating, but they're not creating anything. They're creating content. Mm -hmm. And that's what is, you know, bringing in, the money in a lot of cases yeah or that is their brand identity developing a brand identity (laughs) uh it's very uh I don't know it's very 2022 the now the future (laughs) very much so very much so yeah content to me is just always such a nothing word it it kind of just describes really anything and when that so-called content which can include maybe films that you are creating along with maybe a short video that you decided to shoot this morning or like an apology post or an update (laughs) post or um you know just some musings about the the latest philosophy that you read and that all gets merged into this sort of this pile this this bucket this basket of content and to me, that what that does is sort of almost devalue the work that maybe someone might be focusing on or so maybe the work that someone might care about the most. Yeah. 
again, there's a whole conversation to be had about that. But let's actually take a step back and let's actually reflect on maybe the first time we may have seen dance online. Um, Hannah, do you have a memory of when you first saw a video of dance on the internet? You know what? I have no idea. Actually, I think I I probably saw dance documentation, dance work online, but not an actual dance film. I started getting into dance film around 2012. So that was definitely an age of posting on Facebook on a regular basis and like dabbling in Instagram. I remember like people sharing dance documentation of a certain performance online and trying to recreate it or watch it down to a T. But I really don't remember much dance film. Dance film as in what we talk about on this podcast every week on the internet. What about you? I kind of have to give a bit of a qualifier here because the first, I guess the first time I suppose I used the internet to watch dance film was um, using the internet in tandem with a a CD-ROM set from a local ballet company. So cool. Yeah, I mean, remember those? (laughs) Remember how if it got one scratch, it would completely ruin the whole thing? Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I remember that there's a CD-ROM from a local dance company that, um, that one could put in and then use in tandem with an internet page in order to watch different interviews that this company was giving with uh, with its dancers and little behind the scenes bits as well. So similar to what we might see like on an Instagram page or a YouTube mm-hmm. page, but it was in a physical media form. And that's my earliest memory of seeing dance um, online in, in some way. And then come 2005, 2006, here comes YouTube. Yeah. And then you're seeing, I mean, lots of random videos. I think at that time, uh, I think even though anyone could technically upload video, not a whole lot of people necessarily had the capability to do that. Like that, like as far as media literacy goes, I don't think that had been established yet. Yeah, there wasn't really much smartphones going around at that time. It was still kind of the age of like the slider or, you know, a keyboard on the phone and all that. We didn't really post what we know today yeah like 140p resolution kind of things oh gosh, 140p <laughs> so it was a novelty anytime I saw like a little dance clip with that was either it usually fell into one of two categories like one was a would be like a rehearsal video of someone doing a variation on stage or it would be like the lowest quality dvd rip that someone had uploaded. Mm, so yeah. it really couldn't attest to quality. But then, and we referenced this in our So You Think You Can Dance episode, when So You Think You Can Dance was on and I missed an episode, I would go to YouTube and watch the dancers there. Wow. And in a way, it became sort of like a historical archive and almost like a failsafe that if I wasn't in a certain place at a certain time, I could just reliably go to YouTube. And that also extended to figure skating as well. <laughs> but that, again, is a subject for another episode. Well, putting putting work online, like, I mean, the a big reason why I got into dance filmmaking or filmmaking in general was the fact that I can put it online and I could put it on a portfolio and share it with all my friends near and far 
who may have not been able to come to my dance performance. And in that way, I can create my own content the way I really want it, which was not to be on a stage. And then they could see it in the way that I wanted to show um, show my work. I mean, that was like 2012, 2013 at the time. And honestly, like before that, I wasn't really watching a lot of videos online. I was watching mostly Netflix. I wasn't doing as much of the exploring of what is available or what is out there until, you know, after that moment of making that decision. And and that's what we know of today. You know, people put their work on their portfolio, their social media, on YouTube, other websites that are there that produce and showcase dance film. But I mean, it was, I don't know, you could say like the future of actually sharing dance art video beyond on the internet. And when it comes to dance film specifically, I'd say maybe before 2012, it was hard to really find a consolidated place that everybody could access. Totally. Because the films were usually seen either at festivals or on some compilation DVDs that would only be sold in like New York and London. Yeah. And if you wanted to see them, you'd have to pay, you know, through the nose to have them shipped. And a lot of festivals operated in this way as well to create more of this event atmosphere too. But then we saw um, some people taking a cue from these streaming services and starting to put work online. And I'm, uh, again, very honored to be speaking with one of the people who really took the initiative to do that right now. <laughs> oh, thanks, Claire. But I have to say, I mean, with all the, everything that we're saying about these streaming services and finding dance online, like at that uh, time, and, you know, as we were saying, 2012, 2013, and it was hard to find these works, there was like a lot of pros and cons that I was finding during that time, which was like going to websites like Vimeo or YouTube, because that was what I knew at the time. Um, it was very saturated with not dance films. They were not dance films. They were more dance documentations. There were audition tapes. There was things that you wouldn't consider that the university space where we would have these conversations to talk about them. The filter was very uh, not, <laughs> there was no filter basically. Yeah, there's no filter, especially for anything dance related because especially when you look at um, sites that are not necessarily devoted to dance, like even if you look at something like a streaming service or like a video platform, if you just type the word dance, usually that's the only unifier, that it features dance in some way or some conception of dance. Not necessarily dance made for the camera, but maybe dance being performed in a camera is there. Yeah. So it's, yeah, really difficult to actually parse out where um, work specifically created for the screen can be found. And even when you look at great resources and websites, and I want to shout actually Numeridance, which is a phenomenal resource, but even there, it's really difficult to parse out which which work is created for the screen. Right. And then you can get even deeper with that 
where you see very highly produced um, performance documentation, which in a way that's dance reframed for the screen, but it's, its anchor is still in the live performance. The creation of that work was still, you know, with the context of a live setting in mind. Right. And so, yeah, it's difficult. I think it's still difficult, but even then, like that there's enough platforms with a stronger sense of curation where it's much easier to find that kind of work. I still question to this day about how we can improve that, but that's a conversation that we'll reach on later in here. But besides the pros, which is you're putting your work online, great. More viewership for people. And when we say viewership, I'm not just saying friends and family. You're going to get a lot of, you know, different people, especially if you're putting it publicly online on such, you know, popular platforms. I'm just going to keep saying Mm -hmm. YouTube and Vimeo because those are the most widely easy and you just know, you know, someone from another country <laughs> is going to take a look at it and watch it, which is yeah. very great. I think that's just like a, a blessing, you know. And again, that was like what I was thinking when I wanted to put my work on. Yeah. I was like, I want that random person that I don't know who is not in the same time zone as me that's going to be able to see it. The beauty of the Internet. Exactly. Exactly. And there's... Also, um, I mean, at least a lot of the talk when I was first getting into dance film was film offers a more streamlined method of distribution rather than putting on a live performance. And I've been in plenty of those settings where you spend like five months putting your heart and soul into a live work that like a dozen people see. And so having that work live in a place and being able to point people to that work, to that place, and you'll get their feedback in real time because again when you're dealing with live work very off it's it's very rare that you get any kind of um feedback other than oh i liked it oh that was great and then yeah that's usually the extent of it that little extra critical thought means a lot and i think that's what we all strive as artists is we just want that one comment that's not just a compliment we want that one thing that they thought about it. I definitely agree. And one thing that you said that made me think about the living online, but purely living online. It's also an archive that we're setting up on there. Being able to revisit or someone just discovering it after X amount of years is such a great way to preserve the things that we put into, not the metaverse, not just yet, but... (laughs) (laughs) what is out there eventually eventually eventually. I mean if you're just discovering this work archives uh are really just a goldmine for just an incredible resource of it and not necessarily just consolidated to the platform itself because oftentimes especially if you're viewing it on uh YouTube or Vimeo you'll often get recommendations to look at similar work and so it's really a, um, a combination of this work living online as well as the, I don't want to say natural algorithms of, <laughs> of the internet world, but the tugs that these codes like to do to pull your attention in a certain direction. These archives also sort of act as a frame through which to view the work and often a frame by either the person who created it or the person who curated it. 
And there's a lot of websites, especially nowadays, where um, a lot of the work really corresponds with a certain artist's brand identity. I'm thinking in cases like um, like Jacob Jonas Company or even cases like Homeroom, where the methods of release really correspond to what that artist's work or what that artist's persona is about. And they really are essential to constructing sort of these ideas of an online persona and almost a way of controlling like what the, the mythos, for lack of a better word, in a way of what an artist is and what they're about. Yeah, it's kind of like these websites that is considered the norm these days of what we're putting our portfolio on. It kind of reminds me of like a coffee table book, you know, where we get to see the whole layout of a body story of someone's mind I think about you could say Pablo Picasso Keith Haring or you know <laughs> Matisse all those and you can when you have them all in front of you you can see what the journey was and how it's evolved but yet also there's still this like thorough line of a theme and when you have that in a website in front of you it's that whole completion of that circle which I really enjoy exploring in my downtime. Down it's funny to say, like, the brand identity, I feel like everyone is, like, on this path, you know, mm-hmm. finding what aligns with them or, like, what their image is. It's funny when I changed uh, career paths, I had to alter my website and change my brand identity because I wanted to not just align with them but it had to like you know like it had to align with me at the same time and that's really important of how you not just these videos that you're putting online but also how you're displaying yourself through these websites it's very important especially when it comes to like also like job hiring you know like that I once did a summer where I that was my job I had to like find all these freelancers and yeah I was judging Mm -hmm. by their website I was judging by how organized it was but also what their work was do they have a real exactly the music choices there and that their resume it is you it is you and it's an it's an extension of you it's your cv I mean speaking from experience I'd say most of the work I've gotten or at least most of the freelance work I've gotten has been through online platforms and through social media work and like it or not that really is your your calling card that really is like how people are are looking at things because when people are looking to hire they're I mean first of all they're they're usually hiring last minute yes so (laughs) they are looking they're looking they're looking they're looking at what catches their eye and um, someone that they can feasibly access very quickly and if your online presence displays that they're more likely to reach out and you're more likely to to get get calls or not calls necessarily or I guess dms nowadays the fact that artists are gravitating more toward online spaces to put on their work rather than institutional settings like a festival space or like um even like a major dance space it really helps them curate the ways that the work can be seen yeah and this, this can be really difficult when it comes to festivals. And I know from a festival perspective, it's really difficult to curate programs in ways that all the films can be seen as they were intended to see. But it's very lost for short films to get buried in a shorts program. 
and sometimes maybe to even be included in a program that doesn't necessarily serve the work. Maybe the work is best served in a in a single click, single watch setting. And the fact that the artists are really curating this experience for their audience means that the work gets seen in a way that's that was that's closer to how it was intended to be seen. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when we entered 2020 and a lot of these film festivals shifted to online viewing um, versus in a theater space, I think about how TV streaming and film has transformed over time and that viewership has changed going to specifically like looking at Breaking Bad. Yes, this is a tangent, but it makes sense about how, you know, the change of watching media on a screen, it depends on what kind of setup you have. Most of us have these kind of like dinky laptops and we're probably listening through our our not-so-great speakers or our okay Apple headphones yeah. or we're using really nice headphones that are great for sound recording or mm-hmm. sound mixing. It is an or interesting... Like, or like headphones that specifically up the be- up the bass and you can't really change anything right. else apart from that. <laughs> right. So you're just listening to... And... <laughs> And that's a whole experience of like making that decision with like Breaking Bad when they made that decision to turn that into a television space. That was this the same thoughts are into mind. How do we make the desert feel like the desert, even though everyone has different calibrated screens or um, settings on their television? Maybe not everyone has an HD television. They have SD. Uh, standard F, and it's the same situation here. Not everyone has the same computer. People put certain settings, like probably like a sunset screen setting on their computer screen. Like that's also going to alter it. So it is, it may not always be what you ordered for the viewership to be. I I would say that's all secondary. It's not going to be an optimal experience of watching. I mean, and that's something to keep in mind when you put your film online is just how that experience is translating to those different settings. And you might want to consider, I, I mean, I don't necessarily want to say like alter the work to fit the platform, but consider how it's read on different platforms. And again, I, I'm going to go on a tangent myself with, I always love referencing the My Bloody Valentine album Loveless, which has its own storied history and it bankrupted the label and whatever, but <laughs> it's has such an incredibly layered soundscape that deliberately sounds different depending on how you're listening to it it sounds so much differently listening to it on cd versus vinyl Mm -hmm. versus through the computer and each one each experience is rich in its completely own way so you want to consider how your work is being read and even just be open to allowing different interpretations of it as well right i mean it's like uh kind of like how when we had our discussion with Andrew for our mobile Green Dance for Smartphones episode about like that's like changing the way of how we record Screen Dance talking about the portrait view versus landscape it's the same way and then we're looking at these platforms YouTube Vimeo Facebook Watch Instagram that goes into it too of how you want to display it and smartphones don't have the best speakers that's so that's true that's that's another part of sound mixing 
in that regard. And I mean, if you're particular about a certain experience, make that known. Put that in your video description. Put that, you know, if you're sending it to a mailing list, like put that in the subject line. Headphones on. Right. Yeah. Headphones on. Listen after our episode. Listen to that episode. (laughs) Well, I think like the biggest issue that I have with finding dance work online is how people are tagging it Mm -hmm. as well as I would say maybe also naming Mm -hmm. their film. Okay. Call this controversial. Okay. When I was doing Screen Dance Collective, not just me, shout out to Stefan Glynn and Tori Duhame when we were doing this project together, trying to make dance film readily accessible online and where to find it, how to filter through, also try to put like organizing them in boxes. You know, these are animation dance films. These are dance films that exhibit, you know, brand selling. These are dance films exhibiting like, like very well-made VFX work. Mm-hmm. We did it on Vimeo. Mm-hmm. which is great vimeo is great no complaints high you get high definition beautiful work really creative stuff too yeah it's made for the people who want to make films and short films mm-hmm. and they want to be recognized for it right i low-key kind of regret it and wish i put it on youtube my only mm. thing there more people go on youtube mm-hmm that's all I got to say there because right. there, there's just more people, more diverse. Not everybody goes on Vimeo or has a Vimeo account on their cell phone. I don't. I don't have the, the app on my phone. I'm sitting there watching YouTube for days. Mm-hmm. So there's a part of me that kind of wishes that we were building on YouTube. But the, there, that issue there was like we were sourcing and putting them into a channel that was that we could actually do on Vimeo. YouTube doesn't allow you to do that. You have to like, right. That's like a whole bucket of worms that I don't want to get into. Totally. But I think the best way if people were putting these videos on YouTube for the general public is to start adding a dance film or putting dance somewhere in their title. Yes. Like not saying like this film is called this a dance film. Like, don't send that to the film festival. So I'm, this is this is purely <laughs> for the online people that are trying to look up literally a dance film in the search bar. And yes. that is actually surprisingly very helpful. I don't know if you've oh yeah been going through this as well, Claire. Totally, totally. I mean, I will say that Vimeo does have such a clean interface that it I does. think that curating is at least reads much better there or like curative attention reads much better there. Like if you look at Screen Dance Collective's page, like it looks like a gallery. Yeah. You literally like have this feeling where, okay, I'm looking at this. I'm going to go spend time with the work. Now I'm going to go spend time with something else. And YouTube sometimes feels very, very playlisty, very much like a collection of lists. Oh yeah. However, YouTube does have that advantage of, pointing you to other videos that are very similar and pointing you to other playlists with these kinds of videos that are very similar. Again, this all has to do with feeding the algorithm. And even though the algorithm can be very can be very noxious, it can be very biased, it has some very unfortunate implications with it. But if you're looking for something very specific, 
And if you are looking for a very specific audience, you kind of have to play its game. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, like, I mean, it is an audience situation. I mean, not everybody is going to be catered to what they want with dance film. Not everyone likes dance film. But, you know, it's just something that people could accidentally wink, wink, search and be interested (laughs) in. And I think that's the happenstance that I'm looking for from people. I just want people to come across it, which is not the case on Vimeo. I mean, people go on Vimeo to look for that kind of stuff because they're probably coming from those who are maybe artists, those who are students, those who are working in universities. Those are niche audiences. And I don't know, maybe I just have bigger dreams out there that I just want the whole world to be so excited about dance film and YouTube is that (laughs) kind of place where people can get really hot and heavy over it. Maybe I should just come up, become an influencer and start my own channel and just start doing that. Um, is there any dance Do film it. influencers out there? And if you are, uh, you know who to call. <laughs> yeah. Hey, why? Well, just hire hire Hannah Weber as the dance film influencer. <laughs> I'll be the watcher, but you know who to call if you want to be interviewed. Well, that's also something to consider when you're considering YouTube versus Vimeo as well, as far as getting compensation for your work. Because as anyone submitting to a festival knows, you're you're paying for your film to be considered, and very rarely are you getting something in return. There are some festivals and some organizations that are um, kind of flipping this on its head. Uh, Dance Camera West is an example of an organization that pays artist screening fees for, uh, for their work, as well as uh, touring reel situations where if a festival decides to show your work again, oftentimes they'll pay. But with something like YouTube, if you can monetize it properly, you can get a fairly, well, a fairly decent income. Granted, a lot has to go right. A, you have to get a lot of views on your work yeah. in order to make uh, any sort of profit. But I found that the monetization capabilities of YouTube are easier to um, access than Vimeo. Or get better help to sponsor you. (laughs) And hire one of us to be your therapist. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's definitely like, I also want to shout out to Form um, in Vancouver who has graciously paid their some of their past screen dance artists to have their work be screened again they're doing a great job with that but yeah I mean it's interesting when you get to the video fee I will admit like I don't know I'm just not a call me cheap I'm not I don't I don't want to say like I'm not supporting but it does turn people off to pay the money to watch stuff online. Totally. Um, especially, you know, I mean, we have so many subscriptions to other streaming websites. Why can't you give like $5 to just watch this one film to support your friend or this artist? But if you choose to go that route, there's like plenty out there that you could join to get your work seen and be able to support those festivals that are continuously posting work online through a paid portal. There's, I mean, I just want to shout out friend of the show, uh, Jen Scully uh, with Rogue Dancer Film Fest, 
who uh, really does an incredible job and just, I mean, tirelessly curates every month and really has, really takes care of the films. And I think it's always worth noting, like, curate, um, I think the, the Latin root for curate means, like, to care. And she really does a good job of caring for the films that get submitted yeah. and and showing them for what is really just a nominal fee. It really isn't that much. Everyone should honestly <laughs> listen to the show. Should go and uh, subscribe to her Patreon because it's it goes from like a dollar to five dollars a month, which is nothing, and you get to watch these great dance films. Every month you get a whole screening for a month, which is really fantastic and such a treat to have. Uh, So we'll have a link in the show notes for you to go to her site. And there are some festivals that do have a streaming service associated with it. Both San Francisco and uh, Screen.Dance use Marquee sometimes in tandem with live events to put work online and uh, dance camera west actually has a distribution deal with ovid tv so jury winners from that festival get further distribution from that particular platform as well i was gonna say would you say that getting your work featured on these paid services be considered like more scholarly uh, or maybe equally as scholarly as getting your work shown at a film festival versus just throwing up a film online? I think it has to do with who is curating it or who is vetting, vetting the film. I mean, if you're, if you're putting it online with no context and sort of like no, no bounds through which to view it, then it can get lost. Like that, that is a work that can get lost. But if it's put online by an organization that has quote unquote vetted it and, you know, deemed it worthy uh, again all of these I'm using air quotes for everything I've just said I think that adds an some level of prestige or some yeah. level of notoriety for the film and helps and almost like helps others say okay someone else someone else likes this right someone else wanted to see it maybe I want to see it too right call me an anarchist whatever or like <laughs> someone who maybe just like just cares but doesn't care at the same time but I think people should just make work put it online and see what happens because you might become the next person that makes a big splash with the work that you're creating and I think with everything that we're saying regarding figuring out where you post it how you are sharing it online how you are tagging it, how creative is it? How well thought out is it, yeah. it is? Just because it's online doesn't mean it's a great film. It's still as important as some film that you made in school or a big budget film that you've put a lot of money into. Put your work online, show your body of work, yeah. and make it, make it count. Yeah. Framing is everything. Framing is everything. How you're choosing to name this work, how you're how you're expecting other people to find this work. And I also wanted to add another layer to it is how is this work engaging with other work that's already out there? Because if you have an online presence, you're definitely not creating in a vacuum. 100%. You're absolutely aware of the other work that's being out, made out there. And Yes, there are ways that you can approach this from a strategic angle and just 
again, feed the algorithm, like every post you see, comment on every post you see, and subscribe to other channels. But you can also use this as an opportunity to, in some ways, engage with other art and engage with other artists. And in some ways, maybe even find a community around this. Yeah, I think that that was really evident during uh, the last few years in the in the upside down um, (laughs) where we did see a huge explosion of dance film online. And we had a lot of people actively meeting as a greater community and discussing the work in a way that when we were locked inside, it almost facilitated the strengthening of this community. And again, community is another I think that can be also be another problematic term uh, as well. What exactly constitutes a community? Is just being present in space, does that count? But you really want to consider how your work is engaging with other work out there. I think that's the best thing that you've said right there, Claire. The community that you are working with, but one video can be shared amongst a whole community. Mm-hmm. And they're going to share that to other communities. Exactly. And it just spreads like a bad wildfire. But in this case, a good wildfire. <laughs> the greatest wildfire. <laughs> and I think that's the best part of sharing work online and putting it up there is just being able to have that chain reaction just blow up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So consider this. Think about not just submitting your work to film festivals, but just putting it up online and seeing if your friends can engage, share, put it on Pinterest, put it wherever you want to put it and see what happens. And, you know, if you get bad comments, don't worry about it because that's a whole other bucket of worms that we're not going to get into. You know what to do, but see what happens. And anything but good can come out of it and if things go bad about it you can always take it down that's the best part of the internet too is that you have the control of what happens to that video I do want to add some practicalities to that as well as far as sharing your work and this can also correlate with branding as well especially if you're posting on a social media site maybe you want to consider using watermarks or something specific to market as yours. Yeah, This is very much platform dependent, but especially if this is work that's going to be shared quite a bit, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint where the origin is. So um, making that clear once and for all is very key. It's always great to to create work and, you know, use the internet to test the waters. And this is also a way where you can find – your people if they're not you know in your immediate geographic space like sometimes this is a way where you can make those strong connections and I mean I can again I can only speak from my own experience but the screen dance community and this the wider world of screen dance is a very very supportive and very enthusiastic of work that's being created and want to share that work and spread that work as much as possible. There are so many festivals accepting dance film submissions right now. Please take the time to visit the International Screen Dance Calendar to scroll through the upcoming events and festivals happening all over the world. This resource is updated regularly, so check it out. The link is in the show notes. 
well, Claire, I hope these people join the network that we have been a part of and put their work online and try new things out. Absolutely. And we, as always, will have links in the show notes to help you do that. Thank you all for listening. And we will be back next week with Jen. So we'll see you then. Yeah! This is Springform, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team, with social media assistance from Maddie Leitner and music by Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. Don't keep a good thing like this a secret. Invite your friends to subscribe and join the conversation. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review and rate the show. Thanks for listening.